I have a friend uh, named John Stone. Some of you know John Stone. Uh, he served as RUF campus minister at Bellhaven University and at the University of Tennessee at Knoxville. He's worked for RUF nationally probably uh, for the past 10 years or so. And John is a great guy with some incredible gifts and assets in ministry. But if you know him very long, you'll realize that John is really just a redneck from Lugoff, South Carolina. And uh, I'm not slandering John. That's the way that he introduces himself. When John worked at the University of Tennessee, he became uh, really good friends with the athletic director at Tennessee. And uh, John loves to play golf. And finally, one day, Mike invited uh, John to come play at one of the most exclusive members-only courses in the state and even in uh, the southeast. So the story goes something like this. Uh, John got to the course early, and you can picture him driving into the parking lot in his 98 Mazda Protégé hatchback. And uh, as he pulled into the parking space, these young men in polo shirts approached him quickly and they said, uh, may we help you? John said, no thanks. And he went on to take his own golf clubs out of his car, which is apparently a no-no at a really nice golf course. And uh, as John began to stroll around, he was underdressed, he was out of place, so the golf marshal came to him and said, Sir, may I help you? He said, No thanks, and uh, kept walking around. And with that question, May I help you, was uh, the implied statement, You don't belong here, you must be lost, don't you know that the service entrance is around back? And uh, finally, after guests and employees were whispering and pausing and pointing at John, uh, the clubhouse manager approached him and said, uh, may I help you? you? You understand that this is a members-only golf course and golf club. And John said, I know it is. No thanks, I don't need your help. And uh, the way John tells the story, only minutes before they called the police to have him physically removed from the premises... Uh, his friend Mike arrived. And when they realized that John was with Mike, the athletic director at UT, who was a member, they treated John totally differently. They uh, took his clubs, they put him in the cart, they gave him complimentary food and drink. Um, he was accepted and approved, not because of himself, not because of his money or his credentials or the fact that he was a member of the club, he was approved, he was accepted because of his friendship and his invitation from his friend Mike. He knew he could be there, he had freedom and confidence to be there, maybe a little too much confidence in my opinion, uh, but he had confidence to be there because he was with his friend. And that's a, a long opening illustration to, to illustrate this point. Um, God calls us to live by love and to walk in the light. Two things that are mentioned in Romans chapter 13. He calls us to those things because we have been accepted in Jesus Christ. We go back to Romans chapter 12 verses 1 and 2. And it's because in view of the mercies of God that we're able to have these commands and these things that are written for us. So we have this this freedom and this privilege to seek to live by love and to walk in the light because of the radical love and forgiveness and acceptance that's given to Christians 
through Jesus Christ and his gospel. And so that's what, that's the backdrop of, of Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 8. It's because we've been accepted, because God loves you and has accepted you, and because there's nothing that can separate God's children from the love of God. We have the freedom and the ability to respond by seeking to live by love and to walk in the light. So let's look at the passage together. It's interesting Uh, This section in Romans chapter 8 is really a summary of everything that's gone before, especially in verses chapters uh, 12 and what's gone before in chapter 13. So uh, it's the pinnacle of rightly seeing ourselves and others, of using our gifts, of relating to Christians and non-Christians, and even submitting to the government. The pinnacle of that is to live by love. And to walk in the light. And this section also serves as a springboard to help us think about how to begin to think through what we'll see in in chapter 14. How to live with those who are weaker in the faith. How to live with a weaker brother. And next week, Pastor Scott is going to explain chapter 14 so clearly that none of you will ever have questions about that passage again. So let's dive into Romans uh, 13 together in the second half. And the first thing that, that we see here is that we're called to live by love. There's an interesting play on words as, uh, as this section begins. There's a twist. In verse 7, last, a couple weeks ago, we saw that we're to pay our debts, pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed, and then at the beginning of verse eight, it says, "Owe no one anything." So there's this principle to pay your debts; don't be a deadbeat. And there's this principle in verse eight that says, "Owe no one anything except this one thing: that we are indebted to one another. We owe one another love." I believe this command applies to us as the way we think about other brothers and sisters in Christ, but it also think it applies to us as we think about how to relate to outsiders. We're called to love one another, and it's a simple command, yet it's mind-blowing. And this isn't the first time we've seen this. We saw it some last week, or a couple weeks ago in Romans chapter 12, where it talks about this, to let your love be genuine, verse 9. Love one another with brotherly affection, verse 10. And so again, in verses 8 through 10, we have this command to love one another. That's the call for believers. Love each other. Jesus said it like this. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love one for another. So love wasn't new to the ministry of Jesus Christ. It wasn't new, a new thing that he introduced. It wasn't something new that he added to the Judeo-Christian uh, tradition. It wasn't new in kind, but the love that Jesus is talking about and the love that's spoken of here is new in expression. It's new in depth. Jesus is essentially saying, in me, you are seeing You're being introduced to the greatest, fullest expression of love 
that the world has ever seen. And that love that we receive from Jesus Christ should grow and develop and blossom in us. Remember what Jesus said. This is one of the ways that people will know that we're his disciples because we have love one for another. And it's a love that we've received freely, Jesus said. And it's a love that we're freely to give away to other people. And Paul goes on to talk about the relationship between this love from God and the law of God. So we have a command to love one another. And then in verse 8, we also have an explanation. The second part of verse 8 says this. For the one who loves has fulfilled the law. Again, this is a mind-blowing statement. It's hard for us to wrap our, our minds around. But love and God's law are things that are not at odds with one another. They're not antithetical. In fact, one of the greatest ways to express love for God and love for our neighbors is by honoring and keeping the law of God. We're so tempted to think that God's law and God's commandments are heavy. They're hard. They're difficult. They're meant to keep us down as human beings. They're too short. They're too narrow. They're too short-sighted. But here's a reminder that God's law, God's commandments, God's rules for us mixed with love is is an expression of one of the, the most beautiful things in all of creation and in all of the world. The law reveals God's character. It reveals thinking about and treating our neighbors in a way that's loving and merciful and kind. So... Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves has fulfilled the law. Love and God's law are not antithetical. They go together in this beautiful way. And then the verse goes on to show these examples of what it means to live by love. Look at verse 9 with me. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. It's not rocket science. If we want to love our neighbors, we want to love and honor them, what are the things that we don't do? We don't commit adultery, we don't murder, we don't steal, we don't covet. We honor other people. We actually love other people when we keep and obey God's commandments. And if we seek to keep and obey God's law and God's love through through love and kindness, then, then the, the law of God is adorned with honor and it's magnified and it's glorified. And Jesus summed up the law just the same way as it was summed up in the Old Testament. You remember these words, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And that's the message of the parable of the Good Samaritan. If we want to love our neighbors, we don't do wrong to our neighbors. We don't hurt our neighbors. We don't hurt those that are around us. We help them. We care for them because love is the fulfillment of God's law. It's the goal. It's the end of God's law and God's commandments and God's purposes. And this is so counterintuitive to the way that our, our culture thinks about love. Love is so often associated with simply fulfilling and gratifying our desires. And we can 
We can hear or picture a young dating couple pushing the envelope in what's appropriate for them. And one of them says, you know what, we need to stop. And what does the other one say? But I love you, honey. But I love you. Many times in our world and in our hearts, love means gratifying our desires. Sexual, physical, emotional desires at any and all cost. But the purpose, the goal, the heart of God's law is love. And it's the fulfilling and the completion of God's law that's intended for us. So, this is a huge cliche. But it really is true when we look at this passage that true love waits. Love honors life. Love celebrates and protects marriage. It doesn't rejoice in evil, but rejoices in the truth. It honors forgiveness and kindness and mercy. It thrives in contentment and not covetousness. True love is about honoring authority and not bucking authority. So because the gospel of Jesus Christ is real and powerful and active, today we're called to live by love. And if you think about it, love really is the greatest motivator. It's one of the greatest uh, motivations or motors for us to obey and serve God. Yes, there are times when we obey out of duty. There are times when we obey out of the fear of the consequences. There are times when we keep God's law because we don't want to live with regret. But the purest and most powerful motivation for obedience, for keeping God's law in relation to Him and other people, is love. And it's, it's God's love that's been spread abroad in our hearts. And it's the love that God has for us, and it's the love that is building and growing within us. And think about it like this. When we live by love, when the love of Christ is within us and is working in us, think about some of the implications. When we live by love, we're less likely to keep score. We're less likely to think about our friends, our brothers and sisters, or our spouse. Well, I did this, so they need to do these things. When we live by love, we want to care for and help others. Think about it in this way. When someone is hurting or struggling among among us, what do we do? We rally around that person. We give them of our time. We make them food. We care for them. Why? Because we love them. We don't take a meal to someone's house and say, you know, in three months I want this back. You better make me a meal that's as good or better than this. No, we do. We love people because God's law and God's love are within us. And we're called, in view of the mercies of God, to live by love. Think about your family. In the best days, in the best circumstances, you want to honor one another in love. Jesus calls us to live by love because... We've been loved so greatly, and we've been loved so much. So I think that's the principle that we see in verses 8 through 10. And in verses 11 through 14, we're called not only to live by love, but we're called to walk in the, in the light. Not only is there a positive call here in Romans 13 to live by love and to fulfill the law, but there are also negative warnings and commandments. These warnings and commands are loving 
as well. We hate to hear them at times. We bow up like we have all the answers, but we all need someone to come alongside us at different times in our lives and say, hey man, what are you doing? You know that the way that you're living, the way you're talking, the way you're thinking, you know that's not in line with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We all need folks to come alongside us and say hard things in love to help put us back on track. And, and if you've been a Christian for long, I bet you can, you can name folks who have come alongside you and said hard things that have been an encouragement to you that the Holy Spirit used to help move you toward obedience in Jesus Christ. Think about it like this. Um, verse 11 says this. Besides this, you know the time. And, and we might say it like this. Uh, On top of all these things, remember this. I think about it uh, trying to encourage a young person about their grades. And, uh, you know, you need to do well in school because... You need to get into high school. You need to get into a good college. That's kind of the long-term thing. But, but also, on top of that, remember this, that that dance that you want to go to, that sleepover that you've been looking forward to for months, is the weekend after report cards come out. So on top of all this, think about that. And, and in some way, that's what we see here. We're called to walk in, in the light. Besides this, you know the time. So here's one of the principles that we see. Salvation is nearer than we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. Paul is talking about the eschatological hope. He's saying the end, the consummation of all things, is coming sooner than we thought. It's almost daybreak. In other places in the New Testament, we're told that that we now are living in the last days. And uh, it's true, before we know it, before you know it, all of us will stand before God. We'll see Jesus face to face. Paul didn't, didn't get his end times timing wrong. Whether Jesus returns or we die to go to be with him, uh, the day is, is near, the night is almost spent. And knowing that we'll see Jesus sooner rather than later, knowing that our salvation is closer, is nearer to us than when we first believed, that's actually an encouragement to us to live in a way that brings honor and glory to God. Because we're looking forward to being with Jesus, it means that we seek to purify ourselves. Last weekend, I went to my brother's wedding, and I had the privilege to officiate my brother's wedding up in South Carolina, and he and his wife, uh, they spent months preparing, planning, all these things to help make the wedding and the ceremony and the reception a special treat and a celebration. They knew the day was coming, and it was an amazing time of celebration. They were looking forward to it, so what did they do? They got ready for it. Knowing that one day we'll see Jesus, knowing how much he loves us, and that we've already been accepted in the beloved is actually a motivation for us toward holiness, toward righteousness. Listen to what 1 John chapter 3 says about this. Beloved, 
We are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. God's not finished with us. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. So when we see Jesus, we'll be made perfect. And then this next part is so powerful. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as God is pure. So you see what that verse is saying. We're the children of God. We, when we see him, we'll be made like him. Therefore, let's get ready. Let's purify ourselves for that great day. And the text goes on to, to give us some encouragement and some commands. The night is far gone, verse 12. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. The works of darkness are those sinful actions, those sinful thoughts. And part of the calling here, in light of the mercies of God, is for us to cast those things aside. I was thinking about how to illustrate this, and uh, this may be a stretch, but I thought about a group of friends being at a bonfire. We like to do bonfires, and it's really cold, so you back up to the bonfire, you get really close, and uh, you've actually gotten too close. And your coat catches on fire, but you don't realize it. You're just talking to your friends. And then one of your friends comes up to you and says, your coat, your coat, you're on fire. It's on fire. And you would cast off that coat, wouldn't you? You wouldn't say, hmm, let me unbutton it and uh, slowly unzip it and take it off. You would, you would get rid of that. You would set the land speed record for taking off that coat because it was on fire. And that's the picture, I believe, here, that we're called to cast off the works of darkness. We're called to throw them aside, to, to, to cast them off, kind of like if you, if you found out that there was a spider on your arm, you know how people freak out when there's a spider, we get rid of that sin, we cast it aside, because those sins are the works of darkness. We don't try to keep it near, we don't try to hold on to it, we cast it away, we get rid of it. The passage also says to put on the armor of light. And the idea of light and darkness is seen here in this passage. And, and it's such a powerful image. The difference between night and the day is helpful for us. In the daylight, in the open, there's nothing to hide. There's nowhere to hide. The light shines upon us. There's, there's, the light reveals what's going on. But what's the reality? When folks are up to no good... A lot of times, they do it in the darkness at night. So the armor of light, most commentaries believe, is connected with the armor of God that we, we read about in Ephesians chapter 6. Guard yourselves, arm yourselves for living a life to and for God in the daytime. Walk as in the daytime. Don't walk in the darkness. And the passage goes on to explain what walking in the light looks like. Look at verse 13. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. Walk in a manner that's worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Walk as those who know and love and follow Jesus Christ. And in the passage, there are some examples that... Are given. There are some things that folks in the first century, in Corinth, where this 
book was probably written from and in Rome and throughout the, the New Testament world, there are some things that, uh, that these first century Christians were confronted with, things that they were challenged by. And uh, one of the things that we see is that they lived in a sexually charged culture where people were tempted to let lust and sensuality rule their lives. I'm so glad that we don't face any of those problems today. (laughs) That's not true. Um, You know that we face these issues and these struggles, and just as he did to those Christians in the first century, he calls us not to live in drunkenness, but to live in sobriety. He calls us away from all types of sexual sin to live a sexually pure and whole life. Let me just say this at this point. If you find yourself caught or trapped or neck deep in these sins or other sins, maybe sins where you're overwhelmed, where there's all this shame and guilt and remorse, but you still feel trapped, you feel that that there's no way out, you're addicted, there's no chance to change. Listen to me. There's hope in Jesus Christ. There's hope in Jesus Christ for real change. Come out of the darkness. Come out of the shadows into the light of the glory of God that's seen in the face of Jesus Christ. Talk to somebody. Talk to one of the pastors. Talk to a friend. We're not meant to carry all of our burdens by ourselves. We can't do it alone. It won't be easy. It will be difficult. But God can change you. And I think verse 14 explains, at least partially, how this change takes place. To live by love and to walk in the light. We're called to at least two things that are seen in in verse 14. And I'm going to swap the order uh, as we look at it. The first thing it says is make no provision for the flesh. When I hear the word provision, for some reason I think about um, people in the Old West that were going, that were going west in, in uh, wagons, like a wagon train, and they had to make sure that they had all the provisions they needed for this long trip out west. It would be the food that they need. And what the scripture says here is to make no provision for the flesh. Don't provide the food and the fuel that the flesh, the sinful nature, wants and needs to to execute and live by sin. Before I moved out of the the RUF office over off Chime Street, it was weird. I detected the smell, and uh, it was a smell of death. So I thought about leaving it there for Andy when he came, but I I thought I needed to clean it out. So I I dug and I dug and I had like a a broom in one hand and, you know, I was doing battle waiting for all the mice to come out. And uh, I found the culprit. There was a dead mouse in the closet. And I also found the reason why he was there. There were provisions There were nerds, candy, and Laffy Taffy on the ground that he had been eating off of for who knows how long. He was able to live off of that candy. That was his 
provision. And the call here is, is not simply to cut out sin from our lives, but to, to go a step further, to cut out, to battle those things that lead us into sin. Cut off the problem at the source. Making no provision for the flesh means that we work to deal with the issues that lead us to, that ramp us up toward sin in our lives. I heard this illustration a long time ago. I don't know where it came from or who invented it, but uh, the story's told of a man who lived on top of a mountain, and there was a windy road on, on the edge of the mountain that went all the way up. There were no guard rails on the edge of the road. If you went off, you'd fall all the way down. And uh, he was going to hire someone to drive his precious daughters to school and back every day. And uh, so he started to interview the guys. And one of the questions he asked is this, how close can you get to the edge of the road when you're driving my daughters to school? And the one guy said, I can get about a foot from the edge. The next guy said with confidence, I can drive six inches from the edge of that road while taking your daughters to and from school. And the third guy said, I don't know how close I can get because I'm going to stay as far away from the edge as possible. Guess who he hired? The last guy. God calls us to make no provision for the flesh. So what does this mean? What do you think this means in our lives? Here are a couple possible examples. Maybe making no provision for the flesh means that you don't use your phone or the computer late at night when you're tired or tempted. Maybe it means when you're walking up to the water cooler at work and you know that everyone is talking bad about so-and-so that you just decide to move in the other direction and not be caught up in the gossip that's flying around. Maybe it means that you get off of Facebook when you're you're tempted to look at everyone else's pictures and life and think that their life is so much better than mine. They have so much fun. They have these incredible adventures. And my life isn't worth anything. We're called to fight sin, to make no provision for the flesh. But verse 14 also calls us to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a negative thing we're called to do to fight sin, but part of that battle is to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And you may ask, how do we put on Christ if as a Christian I'm already robed in the righteousness of Christ? I'm already accepted in Jesus. Well, we've seen this principle before in the New Testament. We're called to put off the old man and to put on the new man. And putting on the Lord Jesus Christ means that we live out of the union that we have with Jesus. So if you're a Christian, you're united to Christ. You're united to the Lord Jesus. And what we're called to do day in and day out is to remind ourselves to live out of that union. Romans chapter 6 says it like this. For, he, for the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ means putting on His promises, putting on His Word, His Gospel, praying to Him, trusting in Him, relying on Him, resting in Him, reminding yourself that that my life, my identity, my hope, my shield, my very great reward is all found in Jesus Christ, 
my faithful Savior. Put on Jesus Christ. And that's just the beginning of what it means to put on Christ. Here's the thing. We all need Jesus. It's one of the basic principles of Christianity. And if you're here this morning and you're not sure whether you're united to Christ, whether you're trusting in Christ or resting in Him as a person, I want to invite you. If you want to seek to live by love and to walk in the light, you need Jesus. His life for your life. His death for your death in your place and trusting in Him as Savior and Lord. And if you are a Christian here this morning, don't let this this passage discourage you. I'm, I'm not loving enough. I don't walk in the light. I hide in the darkness. Well, it's an invitation for us to believe the gospel, to come back to Jesus time and time again, to know and to sense and to realize that we need him and that he loves us and that he forgives us and that he accepts us. We can come back to our Heavenly Father and ask for grace and strength. We can live a life of repentance and we can seek to to live in a way that is loving even as we seek to obey God's commandments. And we can seek to walk in the light even as we're tempted to hide in the darkness. God calls us to the light. My prayer is that I and you would live close to the cross of Jesus Christ, relying on him day in and day out. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for words that are sweet and encouraging. Thank you also for words that are difficult and challenging. We need them both, and we know that they're both given to us from a loving Heavenly Father who cares so much for us. Lord, help us trust in you to obey your commandments, to live by love, to walk in the light. I pray for those that may feel trapped in sin, that you would give them the courage uh, to move toward you and to seek uh, help. I pray that they would see that Jesus is worth it and that he's able to help us walk in this world. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. At this point in the service, we will take up an offering uh, that will be used to support the work of this church and missionaries. If you're a visitor here, feel no obligation to give. This is something that we as a church body do.